Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for your presence here with us, for your ongoing protection and safety and health and love in our community. We give you thanks. We pray you'd open our hearts uh, to hear from your word this morning. May my words be your words for your people. We pray in your name. Amen. Have you ever uh, have you ever tried your best to do something well, and then someone still gives you grief about it? Like you're working on the thing and you're trying to do a good job, and you've been like, you know, work do, and then someone comes up and is like, oh hey, you forgot, the, you know, you forgot to tighten the screw, and you know, whatever. It's like, come on, man. <laughs> Sometimes we could try our best and even succeed. And someone still comes along and finds fault with something we've done, right? And sometimes following Jesus is like that. You can be doing the right thing. You can be preaching, and and God can be using you to be healing people, and it still leads to opposition, right? That's what happens in this passage. Here the, the disciples are doing the right thing, and it leads them directly into conflict. And it says the temple authorities in verse 2, are greatly annoyed or greatly disturbed by their teaching. Not necessarily that the guy's healed, but, you know, that their te- the reason they're giving for why he's healed, by their teaching. This is the, this is the first major conflict in Acts. There's going to be several of these throughout the book. Um, but it illustrates something really important about the Christian life, which is this. Following Jesus will invite opposition. Following Jesus and being a light or being salt will invite conflict. Just will. Now, you can read this story, and we can read it as like an underdog story, right? Like, here's a small group of rebels, and they're like standing up to the evil empire, you know, speaking truth, uh, just giving it to the man. Uh, but there's a little more going on going on here than just that. There's a, there's a conflict. Essentially, there's a conflict between the leadership of Israel associated with the old temple, right? The temple that was never filled with the presence of God, by the way. There's a, there's a conflict between them and the leadership of Israel now reconstituted around Jesus, who is the new temple, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. That's the fundamental issue here. And Peter makes that point really clearly in his testimony in verse 12, where he says there's no salvation in anyone else. It's Jesus alone. No one else can save you. Being part of God's people isn't just whether or not you're an ethnic Israelite, but your response to Jesus, to God himself. That's that's what makes you part of this or not. And the apostles have emerged as Jesus' successors, right? They're filled with the Spirit like Jesus. They're exercising healing and teaching and courageous authority like Jesus. And they're essentially demonstrating how they're the leaders of a renewed Israel. And their words and their actions are threatening the old order. That's, that's essentially what the conflict is about. That's the deeper issue here. So Peter and John get jailed and arrested not just because they're flaunting authority. And I think that's important for us to note in a time, especially regarding COVID, when, when you know, it's easy for people to just say, I'm just, you know, like, I'm, I'm just, done, just done with everything, right? They're not arrested because they're just flaunting authority. They're arrested because they're preaching the gospel. 
they're arrested because of their faithful Christian witness, not just because they're kind of arrogant and sticking it to the man. And that's an important distinction. They're proclaiming Jesus as the resurrection of the dead, and that threatens the status quo. That's especially egregious to the Sadducees. You notice in verse 1, who's showing up as, as kind of the people that are upset, right? The priests, the captain of the temple, that'd be the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees show up, right? They're having this, they're, they're preaching, and the crowd's there, and the lame man's doing a jig, and he's, he's excited, right? And these are the ones that show up. The Sadducees, uh, it's worth noting, are, are a, a small, ri- quite wealthy, influential, kind of aristocratic group, and they are leery of any kind of disruption on the temple grounds, right? They're kind of like watchdogs, like, what's going on over there? Don't want that to get out of hand, you know. They're kind of on it to see what's going on. And they don't believe, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels or spirits or the resurrection of the dead at all. And that's partly why they're so disturbed at the apostles' teaching, right? Because Peter says, all of this is because of Jesus, the risen Jesus. He's the resurrected Lord. And now look at the life of the kingdom that he is bringing. And that would have been especially egregious to the, to the Sadducees. Peter says Jesus is the cornerstone, the resurrected Jesus is the cornerstone that they're rejecting. And that goes right to the heart of their beliefs. And so that comfortable position of power that they're in, in terms of making decisions and being part of kind of the ruling elite in the temple, is being threatened by Peter and John. If the apostles' claim is true, and in Jesus God's restoration is coming, you know, Yahweh's restoration that they're all hoping for, is actually coming to pass, as evidenced by the guy doing the jig who for 40 years was laying at the gate over there, right? There's the evidence. So if that's actually happening, and Yahweh's restoration is coming because of the resurrected Jesus, then that also means that God's kingdom is coming, which includes God's judgment coming. And you can understand why they're a little bit nervous, Because the evidence is pointing that Yahweh's restoration and future hope is coming to bear, and that disturbs the wealthy and political social elites. Especially when they're being told, when you rejected the one who's bringing this to pass. Oh, oh, right? And so they raise their question, verses 5 to 7. By what power... Or what name do you do this, right? By what authority are you showing up in our temple and creating this scene? And somehow the guy is actually healed, right? By whom are you proclaiming that God's future restoration is beginning here and now? Because from the outside looking in, you would think the, the temple guards and the, the priest. Uh, you know, the priestly caste and the Sadducees have all the authority. It's, it's worth remembering, the temple is not just a big worship building. Um, it has its own, I mean, they do the sacrificial system stuff there, but it has a huge treasury. Like it, It's like a bank in some ways. It has its own police force. It has its own security. Um, if you wanted to deal, like, so it's, it's not just a religious center, it's a social and political center as well. If you wanted to come do a business transaction with the Jews, you go talk to the high priests right? It's not segregated out as though, like, here's the religious part and then here's, like, the secular state part. It's, like, kind of interwoven. This is really different from how we function, right? 
So they have, that's why the, when the temple guards show up, that's like literally the temple police coming to see what's going on, right? And so they are properly asking, by whose authority are you, are you doing this stuff in the center of what we believe makes Israel Israel? It's the center of our kind of religious and social and political life, and what on earth are you doing, <laughs> right? What are you doing? And Peter answers in verses 8 to 12. And I like that in verse 8, excuse me, it says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, like, of course he's filled with the Spirit. We, we did Acts 2, right? But it's like, it's like Luke is saying, there's a measure of the anointing of the Spirit in that moment that was so evident in Peter's own life. I think just think that's neat to just emphasize that, right? It brings you back to passages where it's like, don't worry about what you're going to say when you're before the authorities because the Spirit will help you know what to say in those moments, right? And so here we go. We're seeing that happening. And Peter, like we've seen twice before, uses the opportunity when he's kind of given a platform to point people to Jesus, to preach the gospel, and to preach repentance and faith. Look at verse 9. He says, if we're, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So Jesus is the, is the authority in whom this has happened. <laughs> and then he says, verse 10, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So that's a blow to the Sadducees, right? Because they don't believe in resurrection. And then verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So first, again, speaking about the resurrection, that is, makes the Sadducees mad, right? But then he's also implicating the temple leaders in what happened with Jesus, right? You handed him over to Rome to be killed. That was on you, right? And then he quotes Psalm 118, which is about the stone the builders rejected. But notice what he says. He doesn't say the stone the builders rejected. What's he say? The stone you rejected. He casts the temple leaders as the ones who reject the chief cornerstone. He applies Psalm 118 right to them and says, that was you. You did it. You rejected him. And so he's challenging their authority and their power in the temple. And then says, salvation is found in no one else, not just in this system and keeping it going, right? Even though the veil tore not long before, right? The sign that this is over. Jesus was in here not long before stopping the whole worship sacrificial system to teach about the kingdom of God, right? This isn't about keeping this thing going anymore. Salvation is here, and the evidence of that is in the, in the healing of the lame man, that God's kingdom has come. I think what's brilliant about this passage for us is, is you can really see the heart of God for us and for his creation. There's a, the heart of God, folks, is for uh, wholeness, in our lives. It's for life, uh, uh, boldness for the church. 
to be faithful to Christ when there are those that would seek to uh, resist what Jesus is doing. Uh, there's also a resistance here to, to false religion that does not put Jesus at the center, right? And then the leaders react in a, it's kind of hilarious, actually. It's really interesting. First, they're really amazed at, at the apostles, right? Verse 13. It's like, these guys, these guys did not go to college, right? They're uneducated. It's not that they're illiterate, but they're uneducated. They're just common men, and they're astonished. And secondly, they note, these guys were with Jesus. And I think, and that's a pretty good compliment. I think at the end of my life, I would like someone to look back at Nick and say, that guy was with Jesus, hey? I think that's a good thing to strive towards. When people see you, do they think, that guy's been with Jesus. Jesus has rubbed off on that one, hey? And so not knowing what to do, because the people are so excited that the 40-year-old lame, you know, the, fort, the lame man of 40 years is now doing his waltz, right? <laughs> not knowing what to do, they try to order them to stop, which is just pretty laughable. It's like, can you please not do this because it's threatening our temple order and all of our stuff and the, you know, blah, 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 blah. And Peter and John's response is really good. They just said, well, what's right in God's eyes? Do we listen to you or do we listen to God? We can't help but share the good news. Verse 18 says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John say, verse 20, We cannot but speak for what we've seen and heard. Verse 21, And when they had further threatened them, they, so they give them a good kind of tongue lashing, and then they let them go, finding no way to punish them because they're afraid of the people. Right? Because the people... All are praising God for what happened, for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And then what happens? We didn't read this passage, but, but what happens in verse 23 is Peter and John go back to church. And what does the church do? They just have a big prayer meeting about it. <laughs> They're like, that's the appropriate response. They don't, like, try and storm the temple, you know. They're not like, now we're going to forcibly take it over. <laughs> they don't do that. They're just like, Awesome. We better be praying. We better be in prayer. We better be seeking God's face about this whole thing. Because it's, it's a little dicey. We've gotten in trouble with the, with the authorities. So we better be in prayer. Hey, let's not take that lightly. Peter and John's response is great. Who are we going to follow? Are we going to follow you or do we follow God? And it reminds you of Daniel 3, right, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before King Nebuchadnezzar, and they're, they're trying to be forced to worship an uh, idol. And they're just like, we can't, we can't do that, right? We have to obey God. And so the rulers offer a, a few more feeble threats and then release them. Now it's going to amp up pretty quick, right? The stoning of Stephen is not far along. Yeah, chapter 7. So it amps up quick. But initially, at this point, there's just a... Uh, listen, we need to follow God. And as a church, we're going to lean into prayer as we seek his face to, to understand our, you know, what's going on and how we're going to respond to that. So that's the passage. What can, we, what can we learn from it for today? Well, I said it right at the beginning of the, of the sermon. I think as we 
carry the message of God's salvation, as we seek to live out the gospel in our daily lives, and as we seek to bring healing and wholeness to others uh, in prayer and in, in living out our faith and interacting with those who need Jesus, as we're bearing Jesus' name, as we're living out the gospel, it invites trouble. It does invite conflict. It may not be as upfront as this is. It may just be in your own family. There's people who, who harass you and resist you and ridicule, ridicule you. Or it may be more than that. But it invites trouble and it invites persecution. So don't mistake the difficulties or the trouble in your Christian life as a sign that God is not there. Rather, when trouble comes, it may be a sign that you are, you are right where God has called you to be. Now, it's easy to just be like, life's suddenly getting hard. Uh, where's God? He's not here. Uh, my whole, you know, now my whole faith's shattered because it's, you know, now it's a little bit difficult. And, you know, I can't just, you know, it used to be so easy to just go to church and I feel happy inside. And, you know, blah, blah. now it's actually like, you know, affecting my life. And it can be easy to just be like, well, God's not here because it, I'm in trouble. Well, it's really clear in passages like this that following Jesus invites a costly kind of discipleship. The light that we bring as followers of Jesus illuminates what's going on around us. And sometimes it, it lights up the darker places in our own hearts and, it, and makes us realize our, our need to repent of sin in our own lives. But it also exposes issues in the culture around us and often invites a response. The gospel witness of Jesus, as is very clear here in Acts 4, is not always embraced. It's just not. I mean, it, how cool it would be if the temple guard and the Sadducees were like, this is amazing. We were wrong about Jesus. It's, tr it's all true. And they jump on board, right? I mean, that'd be great. But that's not what happens. Trouble may come, and the gospel witness of Jesus is not always embraced. And sometimes that can lead to persecution. And I think as we follow on and acts it, that story becomes clear, especially as we get to the stoning of Stephen. What counts as religious persecution and what what doesn't count as religious persecution, right? In the UK and in North America, we use the word persecution usually to describe a threat to our religious freedom. In the rest of the world, it means you could be killed for your faith. Not, oh, my freedoms are being hampered. It means, oh, they're coming to get me, right? I want to I read to you some statistics. These are quite surprising, and and you won't likely hear this in mainstream media. But according to the International Society for Human Rights, which is a secular observatory based in, in Frankfurt, Germany, 80% of all acts of religious discrimination in the world today are directed at Christians. 80%. So statistically speaking, that makes Christians by far the most persecuted religious body on the planet. According to the Pew Forum, between 2006 and 2010, Christians faced some form of discrimination in a staggering total of 139 nations, almost three-quarters of all the countries on earth. According to the Center 
for the study of global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, Massachusetts, an average of 100,000 Christians have been killed in what the center calls a situation of witness each year for the past decade. That works out to 11 Christians killed somewhere in the world every hour, seven days a week, 365 days a year for reasons related to their faith. That's persecution. That's real persecution. The voice of the martyrs organization has the scale from like ridicule to harassment to discrimination to attacks to imprisonment and then torture and then martyrdom. And if anything, we experience the the ridicule and the harassment end of that, right? I mean, I remember being at work as a teenager getting ridiculed because I wouldn't do stuff as a Christian, right? Like once you kind of are out living your life, you will likely experience that. And that's normal. I just want to say that's pretty normal. We're really blessed that we don't experience this end of that scale. We're really blessed. And to, and to presume that some of the issues we're facing, you know, even regarding COVID restrictions, are exactly the same as martyrdom is, is to really jump the gun. Now, it doesn't mean that, that there's a trajectory that some of that stuff's on that could clearly lead towards further discrimination. Like, I understand the trajectory of some of that stuff is really sketchy. Right? I'm really thankful that the vaccine passports leave places of worship exempt. That's awesome. It's really good. Right? Because that means they're recognizing that places of worship are essential and the state is not going to try to decide what counts as worship or not and bar people for engaging in that based on a proof of vaccination status. That's really important. It's really important. Now, if the state decides, this is still being recorded, if the state decides that they're going to try and make Nicholas check you at the door for your vaccination status, I won't be doing it. Because it goes against my ordination vows to stop anyone from coming to hear the life-giving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So at that point, I can say, no, hang on, stop. Right? Now, I don't need to go and storm the Northwest Health Unit or go down to, you know, Doug Ford's office somewhere, you know, do some goofy thing. I'm just saying if it, at the moment where something becomes unbiblical and unscriptural, we can, with love and respect and grace and compassion, take a stand about that. And for the rest of the time, we can look to Acts 4 and say, what's our response as a church when things are weird and the authorities seem to be telling us what to do? What's the response? Get on Facebook and yell at your friends? No. Complain to other people in your, you know, in the group that agree with you so the message can just get reinforced over and over and over and over and you all get upset and you murmur, right? No. What's the answer? What do they do? They pray about it. There. They pray about it. We have a lot of freedoms. We have a lot of freedoms. We still do. Not saying they can't go away. But we have a lot of freedoms. Are we being told specifically that we can't worship Jesus? No. Are you allowed to be a Christian in Canada? Yeah. That's really good. 
Did they come into your house and take your Bible away? No. Could you go with your Bible and sit in Tim Hortons, if you can make it through the line, and sit there and read it and pray with someone across the table? Yeah. Do you realize that that's a sheer gift that you can go do that? People died in wars, so you could go do that? Really? Right? They're not coming after you because you have a Bible or because you have a cross around your neck, right? Or whatever. You got your fish sticker on your car, right? Not pulling you over. Are we allowed to read scripture publicly? Are we allowed to preach the gospel, which is really offensive because it tells you that you're a sinner and you're not perfect and you're not good enough and you need someone to come save you? We can actually preach that. It's offensive. It's really offensive. Are we allowed to join together in corporate worship? I mean, we're sitting here right now. So before we start catastrophizing, right, that it's all just terrible, let's remember we're still over here on the ridicule and, you know, people making fun of you and potential discrimination side of things. We're not in the martyrdom side of things. Could it go there someday? Sure. Could it not, even in our lifetime? Yeah, it could. We don't know that. But instead of anticipating how bad something could be, which is how someone with depression operates, and I've been there, let's instead take stock of what is actually real. And the reality is we have incredible freedoms. We have incredible freedoms. And so instead of being complacent about it and just kind of being like, oh, that's great, do-do-do-do-do, Let's join together as a body of Christ and recognize the incredible opportunity we have to still spread the good news of Jesus and live for him free of, of you know, enforced restriction on our Christian faith at such a time as this, right? Let's be, let's be wise as serpents. No. Yeah. Crafty as serpents, wise as serpents, peaceful as doves. Is that what it is? You think, it, you know what I mean. You guys know better than I do, right? You know what I'm talking about. Facing even some of, the, some of the regulations with stuff can be difficult, right? There's real fatigue about some of the, the masking stuff and whatever. And there can be a real fear, too, of, of what's going on. And I can understand that. But, but God does not call us to fear, right? But to a life of power and of love and a sound mind. That means thinking well about it. And perhaps the most dangerous thing for us is we must be really careful not to give in to division or to give in to hate. We need to resist verbally attacking each other, right? Whether that person's a, a fellow Christian or not, we're not to speak evil against one another. That's James 3. Whether that's online from the comfort of your office chair or your couch, you feel like you can say stuff because it's not a face-to-face conversation, Right? When we lash out at others, we are no longer walking in Christian fellowship or the unity that Jesus calls us to. And so let's guard our hearts from from the fear and the anger that can easily disrupt so much of of our time and our thinking. We've not been told we can't be Christians. That day may come, but it is not this day. And until that day, we're called to continue on living Jesus. And that means living, as we see here in the disciples, with a courage 
and a passion and a love to know and to reach out to others with the gospel and inviting people into that salvation. We're still called to be part of the church. I want to end with this quote from a friend of mine, Dean Pinter. He said this, Where God's power is at work, enacting real change and real healing, even if it's staring others straight in the face in their own midst, there will always be real opposition and real consequences. Real discipleship has always been and continues to be costly. And so there's a call for us to count that cost, but to continue to live for Jesus, to identify first and foremost with him, and to know that in living for him, it will invite trouble. But God gives us his peace. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that this morning we can know your peace, even as we gather for worship. Lord, we continue to give over to you the situations in our lives, the, the various health restrictions and uh, regulations and mandates that are in place. Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to live faithfully and peaceably as good citizens and respectfully go about our lives as best as we can. Lord, I also pray that uh, you would give us perhaps a deeper courage, a deeper willingness, a boldness, perhaps, Father, to live out and speak the truth of the gospel. Lord, lots of us are used to experiencing ridicule or some harassment. Lord, as that may increase, we just pray that rather than becoming uh, fearful or worried or catastrophizing, you would help us to look to you as the source of our peace and our joy. Lord, we don't want to dwell on the trouble. We recognize trouble can come. We also recognize, Lord, that you uh, have overcome the world. Lord, that you give us freedom and hope and life, that we can properly respect health regulations while also understanding when something is crossing a line towards uh, something that we can't participate in biblically as Christians. So, Lord, help us to navigate those things well. I pray that you'd give us wisdom and grace and compassion uh, for each other, as many of us are maybe in different places in our own lives regarding vaccination or not to get vaccinated or being involved in different things. It's really easy, Father, for us to get divided, for it to get um, really ugly terms of trying to navigate this stuff well, even amongst friends, even amongst fellow Christians, especially online. And so, Father, I just pray you'd, you would guard our hearts. You'd help us to extend grace and peace to each other. Help us to live faithfully for you. And Lord, we just pray. We just pray today, and I'm sure the apostles were doing it after this moment with the temple guards when they got back to the church and prayed. I would be shocked to find out they weren't praying for the temple guards and for the Sadducees to come into a saving knowledge of you, Jesus. And so today, Lord, we just pray for those who are in authority. Just as a community, Father, we just pray this morning that you, you would uh, make yourself known, that you would bring them into a relationship with you. Lord, we think of our provincial authorities, provincial government. We think of our own local health unit. 
We think of our, our federal government and the prime minister and all the MPs and everyone who's involved, Lord, this whole thing. We just pray, Lord, for uh, a spiritual awakening that would, that would flow over our governing bodies and that many, Lord, would be drawn to faith in you. We pray that there would be those who would come who would be able to speak uh, prophetically and clearly into those hearts, Lord, and call them to repentance and faith. Uh, Lord, we repent of our own sins and the sins of our land. We seek your face. We pray that you would heal our land, Lord, that you would bring wholeness and life, that you'd bring people into faith, Lord. Help us to live out that mission well as we go about our days this week, wherever you've planted us, Lord, to recognize that's a place of mission where you've called us to live out your character, to live differently, to show your love and your grace to others. And Lord, help us even when we're doing the best we can and someone's still opposed to how we're trying to live. Lord, help us to extend grace to them, just as the apostles do here. Lord, we love you. I pray that you would just unite us deeper in you and that you would encourage each one as we go today. We thank you that we can gather. We thank you for the body. Grow us deeper and deeper as your disciples, Lord. Help us to pursue opportunities for outreach and mission. Thank you for those who have continued to give to the church. And we just pray in, in the other uh, the other services, Lord, that are going on this morning. We think of Pastor Velma preaching at Free Methodist this morning and others, Lord, where your name is lifted up. We pray your blessing over those congregations. Lord, would you help us to be a faithful Christian witness for you in Dryden at such a time as this. Bless your people, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'll speak the benediction over you. I should put my glasses on so I could see you. It's helpful. <laughs> Children of God who are loved and forgiven through our Lord Jesus Christ, may you know the courage and the boldness to speak the truth of the gospel. May you first know a deep love and the peace of Jesus in your own heart as you live for him. And may we as a body be united in prayer and witness and compassion as we seek to live for him. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Amen.